HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Taste Washington. With more than 235 wineries, 65 restaurants, and some of the nation's most talented chefs, Taste Washington is the ultimate taste test. Learn more at tastewashington.org. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating Valentine's Day. Whether it's your favorite day of the season or you avoid it like the plague, there's no debating. It's a big day for the world of food and hospitality. Valentine's Day is what we uh, refer to in the industry as a blackout day. I don't feel that my manlyhood is threatened when I order a glass of rosé or, God forbid, a rosé champagne. It's an old Jamaican drink from way back, and we just decided to bring it back into existence. It's a drink that the men, they believe it really does wonders. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. On today's episode, we span the globe for strange and curious food stories with Gastro Obscura, which is the gastro tourist cousin of online magazine guidebook Atlas Obscura. So editors Alex Mayasi and Sam O'Brien are here. Talk about posts about food art, food artifacts, food as ritual and medicine, and are actually interested in your submissions, too. Their pitch guidelines ask for food stories associated with a particular place, like Inside the World's Only Sourdough Library, or how in Istanbul, drinking coffee in public was once punishable by death. So many articles are served with a side of levity, like a 20-page publication made solely of cheese, or how a restaurant in Toledo, Ohio, its most celebrated keepsake is a hot dog bun signed by former President Jimmy Carter. I, I love that one. <laughs> or, or simply become a fan, and I can't even say this word, um, an Icelandic geothermal hot spring bread. That's a good one to mumble through yeah. if you're a bit uncertain. Yeah, yeah. I, I nailed it. I, think. <laughs> I really did. Yeah. All my Icelandic uh, uh, you know, listeners are going to call in after that one. Or maybe even top your burger with peanut butter as they did in a now-shuttered Missouri-based drive-in. So whatever your wondrous food stories may be, they want to hear them. And I want to hear from you two. Thank you for being here, Alex and Sam. Oh, thank and you. And 
I, I can't even exclaim how big a fan I am of Gastro Obscura. I'm a huge fan of Atlas Obscura too. And let's define what that is before we design, define what Gastro is. So Atlas Obscura is... Sure. So Atlas Obscura is a guide to the world's hidden wonders. Um, it began as an atlas, but not an atlas of the most famous or important places in the world, but an atlas of the world's most unusual and unique um, or strange places in the world. Um, so Gastro Obscura is our food section within Atlas Obscura. Um, and certainly Atlas Obscura has expanded beyond that initial atlas um, to do a lot more. We run trips all over the world. We run events um, in eight different cities across the United States. Um, in addition to this atlas, we have stories and articles. Um, we have a book called Atlas Obscura as well. And so Gastro Obscura, um, we're taking that same perspective into the food world. Um, so we have a database, which is Sam's focus, of the world's most unique and unusual food and drink. Um, and then we tell um, stories about the food world that look to have an element of the hidden or wonder to them and, and tell you something about a particular place. Did either of you grow up in strange or curious places that might have contributed stories to Gastro Obscura, or were, were you more of the banal? Well, I know for me, um, I think at Atlas Obscura in general, something we believe in is that you know hidden wonders can be something on the other side of the world, um, but it's also always around the corner from you. Um, so I think with Gastro Obscura, that means that you know we've put in this amazing database things like red ant chutney from India, which is certainly very far from my experience, um, or the last fire fishing boats of Taiwan. Um, but then I grew up in Massachusetts, and one day someone suggested, oh, why don't we put fluff in the database? I've been there. I've been to Lynn, Massachusetts. Yes. Um, and I, I was the guy who knocked on the door and asked to go in the factory, and they said no. And then 15 minutes later, a guy came out to the parking lot and said, yeah, come on in. I'm and so glad they let you in. Me. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a big Fluff fan, um, we not only have the Fluffer Nutter in the database, but we also have the What the Fluff Festival. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but I'm, it's... No, but I want to be. Oh, you should yeah. go. I think it's in September, and it's in Somerville, Massachusetts, the birthplace of Fluff, and it's just a celebration of all things Fluff. That is awesome. And where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town outside of Hartford, um, so not a huge, unusual foodie scene, but like Alex said, sort of what we... Uh, like hold really important at Atlas is the fact that you can find really cool stuff in your own backyard, even if it's not like quote unquote exotic. And what's been really fun about the foods database, as opposed to like an Atlas of places is that foods aren't anchored to one place. So we've been shocked to find out that a food that might originate around the world, especially in New York, you're like, Oh my God, that's available in Bay Ridge, you know? And that's just been a really cool aspect of gastro. I love that idea of something not being anchored or tied to a specific place and being so global. But at the same time, I use your site as a way to travel. Um, and, and there are subsections. You can search Gastro Obscure by region. Uh, and, and I love that. And I'm a fanatic with uh, all things Japanese. And when I travel over there, you know, I hit Asia. But w what are the regions of the world that have the biggest glaring holes on your site right now? Uh particularly the Middle East and Africa. Um, we, we have particularly good coverage for certain countries in those regions, like Morocco or Ethiopia, Egypt. But outside of those, we definitely would welcome any submissions from users who found wondrous foods in those places. Are there things that you know of that you're just hoping somebody writes about soon that, that you're teasing out in the world? I feel like if there's something amazing we know about, you know, we'll 
we'll write about that ourselves or find <laughs> someone from that place to, to write about it. Um, but part of the fun of this job is that like our email inboxes are regularly filling with just what people think are the most interesting, unusual, hidden things about the food world. Um, so for me, that's professional writers pitching story ideas. You know, uh, they want to write an article about something. Uh, you you listed some of the articles we've published, you know, about, oh, why it was the case that in, you know, Istanbul centuries ago, it was punishable by death to drink coffee. Um, or for Sam working on the database, um, you know, that's a case where you don't need to be a professional writer to contribute to our database of un- unique and unusual food and drink. Um, and so we have readers and members of our communities who tell us about um, trying to think Persian ice cream sandwiches was something that mm-hmm. was super cool to find out about from a reader, a member of our community. Um, a reader pointed water. us toward Jimmy Carter's hot dog bun. Yes. Yeah. It's the kind of thing I never would have thought to seek out or read about, but somebody who was in Toledo just brought it to our attention and we're very grateful. One of my favorite articles I've read lately was about um, when India kicked out Coca-Cola and well, first of all, I love the soda named Thumbs Up without the B because it's silent anyway, so you don't really need it. So they're saving that much space in kerning. Um, but then underneath associated with it was Banta, uh, the lemon lime soda of India. So you can go down this click wormhole on gastroobscura, and I did for many a days. And you feel like you travel the world um, just by starting in one little thread and ending up somewhere else. How often do you find yourself... Uh, going through your own site and trying to figure out where one thing will take you. I feel like we all go down a rabbit hole every single day. It's actually one of the questions we ask people when we're interviewing them for Atlas is what's the last rabbit hole you fell down? Um, Because that's definitely something we all do as people who are endlessly curious. And I do end up, I, I wouldn't say it's wasted time because I end up learning all this interesting things, but you'll be researching one topic and like an hour later you realized you stumbled on something totally different but you'll make a really cool discovery. Then how did you find or who submitted this piece about this giant illuminated gummy bear? Oh, so that's one of our fellows, uh, Rohini, wrote about the giant illuminated gummy bear. What, uh, what caught your interest? Well, the fact Just that a casual a giant illuminated, illuminated giant gummy, gummy bear. bear. Yeah. Well, it's great <laughs> that you have all these tabs, too, that I could search food art. And yeah. this being a visual show, I wanted to see how much there was. And that, by and far, was the most kind of glorious and awe-inspiring thing I had seen. Yeah, I think that artist takes commissions if your apartment <laughs> yeah. could really use a gummy bear chandelier. But yeah, it's been, it's been really fun. Um, you know, part of what's been really intriguing and interesting about launching Gastro Obscura is to have these patterns emerge or find certain worlds. Um, and so the world of food art has been a lot of fun. And I think, you know... We're, we're going to slowly figure out the answer to this great question of the universe, which is like, why is everyone so interested in creating art out of food and things that are edible? Um, so, you know, gummy bear paintings and art pieces, um, you know, uh, I think, you know, uh, like art made out of butter, which is this great like Tibetan tradition. Mm-hmm. Sam, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, well, actually, today is the um, 15th day of the Tibetan New Year, um, and it's the Butter Lantern Festival, which is the day where, like, they roll out the butter sculptures, um, and they put them outside of the temples, and they're absolutely stunning, just all made of butter with mineral pigments mixed in to color them, and they're so intricate and beautiful, shaped like 
lotuses and dragons and dharma wheels and it's just butter and um the, the beauty of food art is the fact that it's like ephemeral and that's particularly celebrated in the buddhist culture because at the end of it you've created this some something so beautiful but then they either melt it down or they feed it to animals i love that and I, I can't get away with this radio drama, but I was going to pretend like I rolled in a butter sculpture of the Gastro Obscura <laughs> logo just for you today. But I, I do love Our logo the, is yellow. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> would, have made sense. would have been easy. I should have just said it. But I, I do love that ephemeral idea behind um, food art. But at the same time, some of it's more than temporal, like a crocheted octopi. I never thought I'd say that <laughs> or covet it so much. But seeing who was that artist that did that? Um, I have so many no- Kate Jenkins who's a British artist that crocheted the sea so many creatures and they're just wondrous things um, aside from food art I know you care so much about artifact um, you care so much about associating with a place obviously it is an atlas um, are there stories that ever come in that are so amorphous that the you know, you're, you're engaged by the subject, but it doesn't really have a place to stick to? I think that happens. I mean, I think one of the biggest differences between what interests us and what we try to do compared to a lot of the food world is that um, we're kind of, we're, we're the opposite of a trend-based website. Um, I think I've, I've kind of compared Gastro Obscura to your, um, your like quirky friend who doesn't know who Beyonce is or doesn't really know what the Super Bowl is like you you're we're the food publication that's not going to keep you informed about the food world like we're we're not going to do that um there are lots of great publications that do that um but we're we're after something else and so I think you know there's sometimes people doing you know a chef doing something quite interesting um but it's not really like you said tied to a place or there's no sense of tradition to it and often what we're looking for is um especially with food and drink um, and festivals that are in our database, you know, we're looking for something that's really tied to a place that tells us something about that place. There's there's a sense of tradition. It's been around for some time. Um, we love history. And so I, I think that comes up. But by the same token, you know, we're, we're really interested to, um, as much as we focus on place, on still celebrating people who live these kind of atlas, uh, atlasy or gastro-y lifestyles. And so we want to celebrate someone who's making a giant illuminated gummy bear <laughs> Um, or someone who's doing something really interesting and spectacular, um, even if it's you know something new and novel. I mean, we're, we don't just want to be tied to the past. Excellent. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back, and we're going to talk about your submission guidelines so you, the listeners, can actually be part of this wonderful database called Gastro Obscura. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Taste Washington. A food and wine lover's wonderland, Taste Washington offers the most wine and food from one single place in one single place, including samples from more than 35 wineries, 65 restaurants, 60 exhibitors, and some of the nation's most talented chefs. Each spring, attendees can drink and eat their heart out Over four days brimming with specially curated events that highlight the best of Washington State. The result of a continued partnership between Visit Seattle and Washington State Wine, Taste Washington is taking place March 28th to 31st, 2019. Mark your calendar for this year's lineup featuring the Red and White Party, 
Taste Washington on the Farm, The New Vintage, Seminars, The Grand Tasting, and Sunday Brunch. Learn more at tastewashington.org. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Andrew Friedman, and I'm the host of Andrew Talks to Chefs here on HRN. Every week, I interview a diverse cross-section of the best and biggest names in professional cooking. Give a listen and get to know all about the inner lives of chefs. You can find Andrew Talks to Chefs wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael harlan Terkel, here with Alex and Sam of Gastro Obscura. Um, and that's atlasobscura.com backslash gastro, if you're looking for. Uh, we were talking about tons of different things, art, artifact, these episodic rituals. But some of my favorite articles that I've ever read are actually listed in your pitch guidelines. Um, and first and foremost is this idea of kimchi and kitty pools. Can you explain to me what the association is? And I love that it is this episodic ritual thing that brings families, if not communities, together. Yeah, absolutely. So the the background to this article that ran with the headline um, uh, about you know kimchi being made in in kiddie pools, um, it started when someone kind of in the Atlas Obscure Extended Network um, was sharing photos. She's Korean and a photographer, and she was sharing photos of. Um, her mother making kimchi in her, her home. Um, and I mean, in Korea, it's typical to make, um, to make, you know, practically everyone makes kimchi in the home or that's very common, especially traditionally. Um, and you know, you're making a big supply. Um, so her mother was using something that almost looked like an inflatable kiddie pool to put so much of this fermented cabbage in it. Um, and that instantly drew our attention. So we want to, you know, talk with her like we have to we have to get this on Atlas Obscura. Um, that's so fascinating. And I think that's another example of, you know, what seems normal to you is fascinating to other people where I think, you know, took her a second to realize why this would be interesting because it's so typical and normal in Korea. Um, but that was a, a really fun story to see because she took such beautiful photographs um, of how her mother made kimchi. And it was it was fun to see how that's part of everyday life. I mean, and with that lead, there's an association that we all know, which is a kiddie pool. Um, but then at the same time, you have articles about a language that's only spoken while collecting nuts in New Guinea. And that is such a foreign concept. Uh, that is so far from, you know, going to Kmart and getting kiddie pool. Um, what, what's so striking about getting something so singular as that? Uh, I think it's a bit of like our essence. We're often interested in superlatives. Um, we're interested in the only or the most, the biggest, the smallest. Um, and so I think that's a case where, you know, it's fascinating to hear that this language has this singular use. Um, and, you know, a lot of our stories, it's, it's about food and it's about a lot more. Um, and so in that case, you know, the language um, is used because there's some spiritual significance to it um, that gets to what's important about the activity and gathering food. So, Sam, you obviously seemed very emphatic about this butter. Mm-hmm. Um, have you partaken in this? Or are there any things that you have written about or read of, of uh, on gastro that you've either attended um, the event itself or made the recipe that comes out of that? Um, I'd say I've bought a lot of things more so than made. Um, 
for instance, just in, in New York, um, I bought bean pie in um, Bed-Stuy, I think. Um, and that's a pie that grew out of the Nation of Islam's dietary guidelines, sort of distancing themselves from like sweet potatoes and foods that were associated with uh, being enslaved. And so they made sweet pies using like navy beans instead. Um, and it's very rare to find that pie nowadays. And there's one bakery in Bed-Stuy that makes it. I think it's called Abu's Bakery. Um, and I tried that and I brought it to the office and it was quite a hit. So, so again, in our own backyard, we are based here in Brooklyn. Um, what what other Brooklyn-based or New York-based things can we find on Gastro? Um, well, I think in terms of stories, we have a lot of great uh, historical stories about Brooklyn and New York. Um, one of my favorite is about the uh, like progressive feminist aspects of the first ice cream saloons in New York. Um, because at the time when ice cream saloons first start appearing, um, it's, you know, it's considered poor form for a woman, a woman to dine alone in public. Um, so lots of restaurants would just refuse to serve um, a woman who appeared by herself at the establishment, um, or it would be assumed that only uh, a woman who is a prostitute would you know, appear at a, a restaurant by herself. Um, and so when you have women spending time outside the home, an ice cream saloon becomes a place where it's an acceptable place for them to go, um, and they're allowed to dine alone or, you know, in a company of, of, of just women without being chaperoned. Um, and it's a place that also, you know, it serves more than ice cream, too. So it, it's an early establishment where they're able to dine on their own. Oddly, I think I've been to a similar place in Kyoto because the geishas aren't allowed to dine out in public settings. Mm. But there is an ice cream place that they all go to that is famous. Of the, and now it's extended and uh, a little more open to the public. But... Yeah, I, I don't know whether not, maybe we found a broader thesis about yes, ice cream. Yes, maybe this is yes, broadly applicable. We need to find this in you know across every continent. Yeah, and, I mean you must see those. You must see these trends developing on your own site. Um, I mean that bean pie alone. Have you seen other um, situations where somebody's eating something that that strays away from what they ate as the enslaved and mm-hmm. you know celebrate as as like a freedom pie now? Uh, well, we see a lot of foods kind of evolving due to immigration or um, some some foods uh, are no longer eaten really in their home countries, but they might be eaten in the immigrant community in the United States. Um, or, for instance, uh, there is a food, um, there's this carrot salad. I know, Alex, you, you were thinking maybe talking about Korea Saram. There's this um, uh, community where... Uh, it's a it's a Korean community, and they kind of were forced to move around, um, and they ended up in Uzbekistan. And as a result, their salad just took on aspects of like Korean food and Uzbek food and Russian food. Um, and that's actually in Brooklyn. You can get it at a uh, I think it's Brighton Beach, Alex. Yeah, near Coney Island. The restaurant's called Cafe at Your Mother in Law. Mm-hmm. Um, one of three names for the restaurant. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's also part of the gift of living in a, a large city is that you can try cuisines where that's Koryo Saram food is, is the name, like Sam was saying. And it's, you know, a fairly obscure cuisine, hard to find. It's a, a small group of people, um, <clears throat> ethnic Koreans who are forcibly relocated within the Soviet Union. Um, and yet there are two restaurants in Brooklyn where you can go try it. Um, I think too, on your point about us kind of seeing trends, Sam, I think you were talking earlier about how 
like we see the influence of Lent mm. in a lot of different foods that have come up on Gastro Obscura's radar. Yeah, uh, well, Lent's coming up, um, <laughs> and I, I'm very excited because uh, Lent offers two really cool opportunities food-wise. Uh, first, there's pre-Lent indulgences, and people have those all around the world. Um, and then there's also um, Lent cheats, which I love throughout history. Um because uh, in case people don't know, Lent involves periods of fasting where you can't have meat, but you can't have fish. So um, I've been really interested in learning about how everybody kind of worked around that um, using semi-aquatic rodents. So basically they're like, if it swims and maybe it has webbed feet, it's a fish. So um, like in Michigan, uh, sort of in the downriver region, um, that was the muskrat. And there are actually still muskrat dinners that you can go to in church basements in Michigan. Yeah, I love loophole foods. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my, my parents-in-law live in Michigan, and I'll ask them to reserve me a seat at the <laughs> next muskrat dinner. <laughs> They're becoming super rare, so you got to yeah. look around. But, but on, on both points, um, you know, the, the nomadic or, you know, the, the Haram are less nomadic than relocated, but... Out in Brighton Beach, you see a lot of like Uyghur cuisine. There's even some Hakka cuisine. Um, the, these cultures that are at this weird little corner of a country at a nexus of like four or five different ethnic and, and culinary influences. Um, it must be hard to write about those places because of the lack of sources. Um, how hard is it to find someone who can be an expert on something so with, with such minutiae? Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. I think, um, you know, certainly we hear from writers who are really curious and dedicated and who may not be from those groups, but are really enthusiastic about going and talking to those people, um, learning more, um, finding out what there is scholarly and combining that with with firsthand experience. Um, And I think also, you know, as much as we've referenced a, a few times as we sit here in Brooklyn, that uh, part of what's great about New York is that there are people from all over the world, so we can find cuisines that are, in fact, even fairly rare um, or you know, made by a, a relatively small group of people. Uh, I think one of those trends that we've seen with Gastro Obscura is just how many um, immigrant groups, diasporas there are, are all over the world. And, and I mean that you know, kind of more specifically that um, you know, we just keep... I think it's no surprise to people that, yes, there are immigrants in cities around the world. You know, there are Chinatowns all over the world. Um, But I think we just keep hearing about groups of people in unexpected parts of the world over and over again. And so I think, you know, if if you're listening to this and you're not in New York or you're not in L.A. or you're not in London, you know, you're not in a large metropolitan city where you do where it's, it's kind of obvious that there are immigrants from all over the world, you know look around you. I think, you know, it's, it's been a surprise to me to learn that there's kind of always an ethnic enclave in all these different parts of the world. Um, and that's, that's kind of something that's exciting and fun to hear about as well. well what are those enclaves that you've visited personally lately? I know you've spent time overseas in Egypt, but do you try to experience these stories firsthand as well? We do both. I mean, we're, you know, um, if we were trying to f- experience them all firsthand, nothing would ever appear on the website because we'd be <laughs> traveling around um, and it would, it would be quite uh, and enjoyable. But, you know, we're, we're spending a lot of our time here in, in Brooklyn in the office and working with writers around the world and certainly from members of our community, our readers around the world who are sending ideas based on either something that's familiar to them from where they live or something they experience when they travel. Um, 
so certainly, you know, um, I've both been able to experience, you know, we published an article about the Kauri of Saram people and I um, went to Cave at your mother-in-law and tried, you know, this food that was, had both influences of Korean and Russian and Central Asian. Um, when I was in Mongolia, I got to see butter art, um, <laughs> which was great. And I felt very intelligent because I was, you know, we're going through a temple or a monster. I'm like, I think that's butter art. And <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm validated and I can pat myself on the shoulder and I feel very, uh, it was cool to, you know, find it, find it out there um, and know what it was and get to see it. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, we're definitely like, I cannot, I cannot emphasize enough that, you know, to the extent that we've been able to create something really interesting, um, that a lot of people love with Atlas Obscura and that now we're getting to do, uh, I hope something similar with Gastro Obscura, create something that people really get a lot of value of and something that can help people, um, you know, go deeper and experience more when they travel, um, you know, it's, it's not just me and Sam in Brooklyn, you know, it's, it's, we get that because we have a community of curious, um, people of explorers and readers who are, you know, telling us about amazing things all over the world, either that's in their backyard or that they experience when they travel. Um, and that's, you know, we will, to the extent that we'll be able to produce something super helpful to people and super interesting and that covers all of the world and gets us amazing, foods from Africa and, and countries within Sub-Saharan Africa that are not, you know, currently places people think to go try the food, um, that'll be with your help, you know, the help of people who are listening to this podcast and want to be part of that. Um, and I think maybe Sam can probably talk to some more too about like, you know, I work a lot with professional writers who have story ideas, but then Sam can probably speak more to um, what we'd like to hear about from from readers and listeners in terms of, you know, adding foods and drinks to our, our database. Sure. Yeah. So um, the uh, foods database um, is outside of sort of our staff writers um, is largely crowdsourced. So it's from passionate members of our community who go out and they try a food that's like super rare and um, then they, they tell us about it. They write about it. They take a photo. Um, and just to explain what I'm looking for, um, we say foods, but I'm looking for foods, drinks, and what I call food-related wonders. So what that could be is, like you were talking about artifacts, that could be like a super cool tool that you saw in a museum, um, or like the world's oldest ham that's preserved in a museum, um, or looking for food festivals, like um, looking for unique rituals, looking for unique foods that are used as medicine, um, so it's, it's a big scope that we're looking for. Just, is it fascinating? Is it related to the world of food? I want to hear about it. Um, and so, yeah, um, the, the process is pretty simple. You just go to atlasobscura.com and, uh, you can look for add a food and, uh, it's, it's a pretty simple process from there. And I'd love to hear what everybody's discovered. So food doesn't have to be transportable to be considered, but I think it is helpful that you can go to bed and get a bean pie. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, as as macabre as it seems, one of my other favorite articles was the baking the people's pies. I knew uh, where this was going. Yes. Yeah, and uh, it was one of the creepiest things I've ever seen. But at the same time, uh, it's so awesome that you can recreate that for yourself at home. Um, why would anyone? I don't think I can, but people who are more skilled at baking can. That's or, correct. or I thought it was a little too like macabre for you to actually do because it, yeah. they're creepy as hell. Why would anyone ever bake a pie like that? And so, yeah, I guess we we could say this is uh, people pot pies um, were the invention of an artist and baker um, that 
you know, have a Todd Sweeney-esque feel. And so it's a pie where it looks kind of like a macabre face on the top of the pie. Um, and I think this got great reactions from people and we had uh, a lot of fun. Um, one of the writers, Lee, wrote about it. Um, and I mean, I think speaking as someone who works at, at a company, Atlas Obscura, where we have um, had some fantastic events in cemeteries because they're such interesting places. Um, I'm, I'm not surprised that our, a lot of our readers were interested in that. I think, you know, there's some really interesting macabre aspects of the, the food world and history. Um, I always remember, uh, an article, one of, um, one of our writers published about how, you know, the worst gig in history was being the, the village sin eater. Mm -hmm. And so that's someone who was hired, um, usually someone who didn't have a lot of prospects. So this was one of the, you know, few ways they could make a living, um, make some money, you know, at a funeral, you're hired to eat some food, usually bread, I believe, that's left on the chest of a uh, of the deceased. And, you know, when you did so as the sin eater, you are symbolically eating all the sins of that person and taking them on yourself. Um, so, I, you know, there's, uh, you know, we like celebrating positive, fun aspects of the food world. We're interested in some of these these dark aspects as well. One interesting theme that's emerged working on the database is um, there's quite a surprising number of foods that look like body parts, actually. <laughs> so there must be some kind of appeal there. Um, we have two foods in the database that look like breasts. One is shaped like uh, it's called St. Agatha's breasts. And one is um, the Venus's breasts, which is this like very decadent truffle that actually was featured in the film Amadeus and the film Chocolat. Um, and then we, I, I'm realizing now they're actually mostly sexually charged. Um, there's also a bunch of food shaped like phalluses um, around the world, too. Yeah. Or a kati is an ear, a little ear. There the you go. Itself. Um, and I, I worked on this book all about organ meat, so I've seen the pieces themselves. You know so, how the sausage is made. Yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, I almost dressed up like Otto von Bismarck for Halloween one year, but I didn't think anyone was going to get the joke about, you know, not wanting to see. So that's an aside. <laughs> uh, but what's so great is that you guys are so willing to show how the sausage is made on your site. And I really hope everyone goes, uh, helps crowdsource this, adds to the food database, writes you as professional writers too, that, you know, the growing globe of what is gastro obscura only makes us world more delicious maybe more macabre every once in a while too <laughs> yeah. but just that much more wondrous and it's such a cool place to navigate through oh thank you so much yeah, excellent thank you. alex sam thanks so much for being on you've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.org i'm your host michael harlan turkel hoping to have you back here next tuesday at three big thank you to our sponsor taste washington music by cookies and matt patterson engineering cheers Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.